says this is at the heart of what the Bible teaches about salvation, about the work of Jesus Christ, about why Jesus came. It's all captured here in Exodus 12 in the account of the Passover. So before I pray, I want to ask you to do something a little bit unique. I just want to ask you, I'm going to read a, I'm trying to illustrate this in such a way that you can capture in your minds what this must have been like for the people of Israel and the people of Egypt even to experience. So I'm going to ask that you close your eyes if you're willing to do that. And, I, and I'm going to read a, a summary of what's happening. And I want you to try to picture it in your mind as, as I read it. This is from Phil Riken. He's a New Testament uh, professor and, and pastor, has been a pastor. And he captures well, I think, what's going on during this time of Passover in this part of history. So if you would close your eyes and just picture with me what's going on. It was the dead of night. Most people were in their homes asleep. Families all over Egypt had gone down for the evening. But then the visitor came with a deadly purpose. He was a destroyer, the angel of death. The visitor was on a mission from God. He swept across Egypt, calling on every house in Pharaoh's kingdom, it was obvious that he was looking for something because as he came to each house, he paused to inspect the doorway. In the land of Goshen, where the Israelites lived, he found what he was looking for. There was a mark of blood on the top and sides of every door. When the visitor saw the blood, he passed over the house holding back his deadly blow because a sacrifice had been made for sin. The family inside had heard that they could be saved by the blood of a lamb, and the sign on the door was a public testimony of their faith in God's saving word. The rest of the houses in Egypt were not marked with the sign of salvation. As the visitor traveled up and down the Nile, he came to entire towns and cities where not a single household had, suffer, had offered a lamb for their sins. The visitor did not pass by these houses, but slipped inside to claim the life of the firstborn son. Thus a night that began in silence ended in suffering. Father, as we come to this passage this morning, we ask that you would speak to us clearly about salvation by substitution. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can open your eyes. Thank you for indulging me. Three points to the sermon this morning. The title is Salvation by Substitution. We're going to talk about the directions of the Passover the fulfillment of the Passover, and the response to the Passover. If you happen to pick up one of the note sheets on the way in, you could take notes or follow along on the back of that bulletin. First of all, the directions for the Passover. What is this event we've just read about in Exodus chapter 12? What is the Passover? Well, it's well-named because it has to do with God, or specifically here, an angel of death sent by God passing over something. The Passover is the benefit of God's passing over Israel in judgment because a substitute lamb has been provided. I'll say that again. The Passover is the benefit of God's passing over Israel in judgment because a substitute lamb had been provided. 
the instructions were clear. Each family was to take a lamb, and with, it was to be without defect, and they were to kill it at twilight, according to verses 1 through 6 of chapter 12. The blood of the lamb was then to be applied to the doorposts of the house so that God's judgment would pass over them. The spotless lamb was dying in the place of the firstborn Israelite son. If the lamb had not been killed in any particular Israelite household, God's judgment would have fallen on that house as well, killing the firstborn. Thus, the lamb took God's judgment in the place of the Israelites. Now, friends, it is hard to overstate the biblical significance of the lesson that we are presented here. This is at the very heart of the Bible. You may not understand a lot about the Bible. You may be relatively new to the Bible. But if you get this sermon this morning and this teaching, you get the heart of the Bible. The heart of the Bible is that God rescues people from his judgment through the substitutionary death of another. God rescues his people from his judgment through specifically the substitutionary death of a spotless lamb. The lamb becomes a substitute, dying in our place. Why a lamb? Well, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it's the blood that makes atonement by the life. Hebrews 9.22 stresses to us as well, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But the Bible also says, friends, that this whole event taking place in Exodus chapter 12 was entirely temporary. There was no way that this could be the fulfillment of how God would provide a substitute to save his people from judgment. Because Hebrews 10.4 again says that it's impossible, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins and also lambs. This is significant as we come to the New Testament The final plague is executed here in Egypt, but it is but a foretaste of a greater exodus that is to come when another lamb shows up on the scene and leads another people out of a far deeper captivity, namely our own slavery. You see, we are all here in Exodus chapter 12. We are all, by nature, enslaved people. We're not slaved to an oppressive foreign regime like Pharaoh in Egypt, but we are enslaved to our own sin. We are, sa- we are enslaved to ourselves. We are enslaved to a me-first mentality. We are, we are enslaved to our own kingdoms, to the kingdom of me, myself, and I, the holy trinity of the un- unsaved. The unholy trinity, rather. But that's who our God is, fundamentally, when we're born into the world. We are our own gods. If you don't believe that, Just take something away from a baby. And they will gladly reassure you that you are not their God. That they are their own God. And we are in this condition of slavery and we ourselves need to be rescued from that slavery. And that that, that rescue, friends, is not going to come internally. It's not going to come from us doing more, trying harder, turning over a new leaf, restart going to church. Maybe I'll learn a few things. and No. The thing that will help us is an out 
outside intervention from God himself, providing for us what we can never provide for ourselves, namely a lamb to die in our place so that we can be delivered and rescued. So we come to point number two, the fulfillment of the Passover. The New Testament writers make a connection no less than four times. I'm just going to turn us to four of them. Making a connection between Jesus' death and the Passover. In other words, the New Testament informs how we are to interpret the Old Testament because it's a, it's a fuller revelation from God. It comes and it delivers more information, more revelation from God, so that when we come back and read this passage, we know what's going on. Let me turn you to a couple of those passages that make that connection. First of all, John chapter 1 and verse 29. If you have a Bible or a device, you can follow along with me. We're going to go to four different passages in the New Testament that point us to the fulfillment of Passover in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 and verse 29. This is the very first chapter, obviously, of the gospel according to John. And John is writing to us about Jesus coming on the scene. John the Baptist is leading the way as a forerunner patterned after Elijah in the Old Testament at the end of the book of Malachi. And we, we read here the following about the Lord Jesus Christ as John sees him coming and announces his identity. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They knew exactly what that meant. When you're announcing a lamb of God, every Israelite mind who's, who's thinking clearly and is present there is going to be thinking about one thing, Passover. Passover. Peter, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, picks up this theme as well. If you'll go to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter stresses this as well in, in writing his letter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Peter picks up Passover language when he writes the following about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he even talks about us as Christians as those who were in, ex, who, who were in captivity and needed to be rescued. So not only is Passover language here, but exile and exodus language is here as well. We'll start at verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed. Listen, this is, this is how we got saved from slavery. This is, this is how Exodus happens in our life. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. So if we weren't ransomed with perishable things, how were we ransomed or how can we be ransomed? Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It couldn't be clearer. What was the expectation or the demand that God made of the lamb that was to be sacrificed? It was to be without defect. It was to be a lamb that was a male, that was a year old. What does a year old mean? It means a lamb that's entering the prime of its life without blemish. And what do you have in Christ who is called the Lamb of God? Well, obviously he's male and he's in his early 30s. 
we figure, entering the prime of his life. The New Testament makes clear that he was without blemish. There was no fault in him. He was like us in every way except our sin. He was pure and he was spotless. Think about this another way. We've just been thinking about the beginning of Christ's life, right? With John's announcement that he was the Lamb of God at the end of uh, uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Go to the end of his life. Think about John chapter 19. Do you recall what Jesus drank on the cross when he said, I thirst? Do you remember? It's in John's gospel. Jesus is on the cross and someone is down below and they take a sponge full of sour wine and they lift it up to him on a hyssop branch. They applied the hyssop branch to his mouth. Surely there's a deliberate connection. Though these men, lift, through these men lifting the branch, may not have even realized it with verse 22 of chapter 12 of Exodus, where we read, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and apply it to the doorposts of the house. It couldn't be clearer. The very instrument that was to be used and, and applied to the doorposts of the house is applied to the Lamb of God as He is suffering on the cross. Even the very plant used to spread the Passover blood on the doorpost was the same lifted to Christ on the cross to give him to drink when he was thirsty. The connections could not be clearer. Also, we are told as the people are leaving Egypt, they were not to break the lamb's bones. Chapter 12, verse 46 of Exodus. And this is probably one of the texts that John had in mind in being fulfilled in the death of Christ when he wrote in John chapter 19, verse 36, quoting Psalm 34, that when Christ was on on the cross, not a bone was broken. He was a lamb without blemish or spot. So we've seen Jesus is the lamb of God in John 1. We've seen that he's a lamb without defect in 1 Peter chapter 1. What else? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 7, would you turn there? 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. This is the trump card. This is the definitive win. This is the statement that could not be clearer than any other statement in the Bible about the role of Christ and his relationship to Passover. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, where we read, We'll start at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? We'll come back to that next week. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. When the apostles, those who loved and learned from the Lord Jesus Christ, think about Passover, they think about Christ. Jesus is also called in Revelation chapter 5, verse 12. You don't have to turn there, but he's called the lamb that was slain. Don't we, don't we worship the lamb who was slain? For centuries, millions of lambs were slaughtered. But friends, no more. No more. Sin has no wages which Christ has not paid in full, which is why he can say on the cross, it is finished. We do not need another lamb. We don't need another Passover. The justice of God did not pass over Christ so that it might pass over us. The empty tomb is there to tell us that like un, unlike all the gods of Egypt and all the gods of our age, this time it really worked. That's what Easter is telling us. That's why we're gathered this morning. It worked. It worked. 
why we have historical verification that he's not dead. Produce a body. Never could. Because it worked. Death has been defeated. The grave has been conquered. And our sins have been passed over. The implication is clear. Just as the firstborn sons of Israel were spared from God's judgment at midnight on account of the blood of the lamb slain in their place, so God's new covenant people will be spared from judgment on the final day through the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation comes by substitution. If you don't understand that, you don't understand the heart of Christianity. You don't understand what we just celebrated in the cross and the empty tomb. Friends, you don't yet understand the gospel. But if you understand that, you understand the heart of Christianity. You understand why we celebrate. You understand the gospel. God accepted the blood of the sacrifice of his lamb and passed over their sin. And similarly, those who have been born again have Christ's blood covering them. God sees Christ's blood on us and passes over our sin. He forgives our trespasses and sees Christ's righteousness as our own. That's the fulfillment of Passover. So we've seen the directions. We've seen the fulfillment. Now we come to point number three, the response to the Passover. How are we, how are we supposed to respond to that? Okay, we saw the directions in Exodus 12 and how the Israelites responded by applying the blood, killing the lamb and applying the lamb's blood to the doorpost of the house. We saw how that's fulfilled in Christ coming as our Passover lamb, the lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. But how are we supposed to respond to this? Hebrews chapter 11 tells us how we are supposed to respond to this. You don't have to turn. If you'd like to, you can, but I'll just read the passage for us. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28, talking about this very incident, tells us how we're supposed to respond. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28, by faith, he, talking about Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Two key words at the very beginning of that verse, by faith. By faith, he kept the Passover. So what, this, is how we res, this is how we respond to the Passover. This is the only appropriate way to respond to it. We don't respond to it by saying, oh, well, that's a good little thing to know. I like what you did with that Bible thing. You kind of tied it in, and that's, that's really cool. That's not how you respond. You have to have a personal response to this. And the personal response is faith. Now, what is faith? Faith was essential to their deliverance. During the earlier plagues, God makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt. Those, we've seen that over the last several weeks. And his judgment often doesn't fall on the Israelites. It only falls on the Egyptians. But here, here, perhaps the most surprising thing is that in this 10th plague, the distinction between Israel and Egypt is conditional. The firstborn of the people of Israel is not automatically spared from death. The lamb must be slaughtered and its blood must be applied to the doorframe of the house. The clear implication is that the firstborn would die if this instruction were not followed. For the Lord had said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Israel didn't need to just be saved from Pharaoh. Friends, they needed to be saved from God. Just because Israel was distinct doesn't mean they were innocent. 
they were only freed from death because of the applied blood of the substitute. God judged Egypt, but he also judged Israel. When the death angel passed over Israel's home, it was because the lamb had been killed and the blood was applied. The only reason, get this, the only reason Israel was not judged with death is because they had applied the blood of the lamb who had been judged already in their place. Preacher R.G. Lee says, The only way I know for any man to escape the sinner's payday is through Jesus Christ, who took the sinner's place upon the cross, becoming for all sinners all that God must judge, that, through, that sinners through faith in Christ might become all that God cannot judge. Here's the way one writer puts it. God is no respecter of persons. Friends, he will judge everyone by the same standard, Israelite or Egyptian or any of us. He does not care what color we are. He does not care how much money we have, where we go to school, what company we work for, or even how good we are. What matters to God is whether or not we have faith in the sacrifice of the Lamb. Those who trust in the blood of Christ will be passed over. Those who do not will be judged. The great divide between salvation and damnation is blood. Is blood. This is the divide that God always makes. It's the distinction between those who have faith in the blood of the sacrifice he provides and those who do not. And on that distinction, friends, rests the eternal destiny of every single human being. Let me ask you a pointed question. If the destroyer were to pass through the camp of Owensboro tonight, through your neighborhood, if somehow you could even peek through a curtain and see some sort of visible manifestation, what would it be, a specter or something floating through the sky, deep in the middle of the night, would you be safe? Would you be secure? How confident would you, would, would you be? What do you think the Israelites were thinking on that Passover night as the destroyer passed over and God himself walked through the camp? Do you think anyone in their home was huddled up thinking, boy, I'm sure glad I'm an Israelite. Boy, I'm sure glad I'm a nice parent. Boy, I'm sure glad I really tried to be a good person. I've really gone to church, even on Easter. I mean, I'm really glad I did that. I'm glad I've been checking the appropriate religious boxes. Blood? What? Blood? blood? No, we don't, no, don't need any blood. It's not like I've, I mean, I haven't had an affair. I haven't killed anybody. I'm fine. I'm not perfect. I mean, not perfect, but I'm better than them, and, and, I, and, you know, I do my best, and God will understand. That's stopping the destroyer from coming in? Nope. Nope. There is no hope in that. There is no hope in behavior. There's only hope in blood. No hope in behavior. Only hope in blood. Or I should say, no hope in your behavior, only hope in Christ's behavior for you. Behavior matters, but your behavior does not. It's not the ultimate determining factor. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor of the last century, sums it up well when he talks about a simple test he would give to people he would interact with after his preaching. He said, to make it quite practical, I have a very simple test. After I've explained the way of Christ to somebody, I say to them, now, 
are you ready to say that you are a Christian? And they hesitate. And then I say, well, what's the matter? Why are you hesitating? And so often people say, well, I don't feel like I'm good enough yet. I don't think I'm ready to say I'm a Christian now. And at once I know I have been wasting my breath. They are still thinking in terms of themselves. They have to do it. You know, it sounds very modest, Lloyd-Jones says, to say, well, I don't think I'm a good Christian or I'm not good enough. But it's the very denial of faith. The very essence of the Christian faith is to say that he is good enough and I am in him. As long as you go on thinking about yourself like that and say, I'm not good enough. Oh, I'm not good enough. You are denying God. You are denying the gospel. You're denying the very essence of the faith, and you will never be happy. You think you're better at times, and then again, you'll find that you're not as good at other times and then you, than you thought you were. You'll be up and down forever. How can I put it plainly, Lloyd-Jones says? It doesn't matter if you have almost entered into the depths of hell. It does not matter if you are guilty of murder as well as every other vile sin. It does not matter from the standpoint of being justified before God at all. You are no more hopeless than the most moral and respectable person in the world. See, when the blood is the object of your trust, you have everything you need. When you have Christ... Even when your faith wavers, and all of our faith wavers, you can be secure knowing that the blood is on the doorpost. It's an objective reality. It's not a subjective feeling. You see, even if they are in the house, those Israelites huddled up there, and they're unsure. Some of them probably have doubts and don't feel like their faith is very long, strong and are just hoping and hoping that the blood will be enough to save them from the angel of death. Or you've got people sitting in the, the house that are absolutely confident, that are eating the meal with joy, that are celebrating and can't wait to be delivered. Guess what? Both of those families are safe. The trembling family is safe. The faith-filled family is safe. Why? Because their trust is in the blood. It's objective. It's not based on them. Faith, though it may be weak, is nevertheless saving faith. Here's how Don Carson illustrates it so well. He says, imagine the first Passover, just before the Exodus. Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones, two respectable Hebrew names, are discussing the extraordinary events of the previous weeks and months. Mr. Smith asked Mr. Jones, Have you sprinkled the blood of the lamb on the two doorposts and on the lintel and over the entrance of your dwelling? Of course, replies Mr. Jones. I followed Moses' instructions. Exactly. So have I, affirms Mr. Smith. But I have to admit, I'm very nervous. My boy Charlie means the world to me. If, as Moses says, the angel of death is passing through the land tonight, taking out all the firstborn in the land, I just don't know what I'll do if Charlie dies. But that's the point. He won't die. That's why you sprinkled the lamb's blood on the doorpost and on the lintel. Moses said that when the angel of death sees the blood, he will pass over the house. So you're protected. The firstborn will be safe. Why are you worried? I know, I know, spluttered Mr. Smith somewhat irritably. But you have to admit that there have been some very strange going on these last few months. 
I mean, some of the plagues have afflicted only the Egyptians, of course, but some of them have hit us too. The thought that my Charlie would be in danger is terribly upsetting. Rather unsympathetically, Mr. Jones replies, I really can't imagine why you're fretting. After all, I have a son too, and I love him, I think, just as much as you love your Charlie, but I'm completely at peace. God promised that the angel of death would pass over every house whose door is marked by the blood in the way that he prescribes, and so I've done it, and I take him at his word. Case closed. That night, the angel of death passed through the land. Carson says, who lost his son that night? Mr. Jones or Mr. Smith? The answer is neither. The fulfillment of God's promise that the angel of death would simply pass over and not destroy their firstborn depended not on the intensity of the faith of the residents, but on whether or not they had sprinkled blood on the doorposts. In both cases, the blood was shed, the houses were marked, and in both cases, the firstborn sons were saved. So also with all of us who have trusted in Christ and his cross work on our behalf, the promise of deliverance, the assurance that we are accepted by Almighty God is tied not to the intensity of our faith or the consistency of our faith or the purity of our faith, but the object of our faith. That is what makes all the difference. Who are you trusting in? Who are you looking to? Who are you relying on? That's the question. That's the end. It's not how consistent, how intense, how pure how fi- uh, our faith is. It's the object of our faith. The Israelites were not saved that night because of their personal godliness or even by the amount of confidence they had in God. They were saved simply by the fact that blood was on their house. You are not saved because of the quality of the faith. You're saved because of the object of your faith. Two concluding applications before we stand to sing again. I want to emphasize two things because we've talked a lot about the response to the Passover and it's faith, it's trust, it's turning away from self-trust and turning toward Christ's trust. That's what faith is. I learned it very early when I became a Christian at age 15. They defined it helpfully. Perhaps some of you have heard this. They turned faith into an acronym and said, for all I trust him. That's what faith is. For all I trust him. And that's what these Israelites are doing, and that's what we are doing if we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ to save us as well. But I want to emphasize two things, the personal nature of this response and the public nature of this response. Because faith is both personal and public. It has two dimensions to it. First of all, it's personal. You notice in Exodus chapter 12, verse 8, They are told by Moses, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. He's commanding them, you need to do this. You have to eat this. You have to to dip the blood. You have to kill the lamb. You have to get the lamb, kill the lamb, apply the blood, eat the food, eat 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 the feast. And he's telling them in Hebrews chapter 12, or Exodus chapter 12, verse 8, to eat the the eat the lamb. After the blood has been applied, eat the lamb. You know, Jesus picks up on this as well in John chapter 6, where Jesus says these amazing words that shock the people who were hearing him that day when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. I mean, he's saying, he's talking to them, and they're looking at him like, is he, did he just say for us to cannibalize him? Did, I mean, is this literal? What's he talking about? Well, of course it's not literal. He's painting a spiritual metaphor of what people must do to respond to him. Rely on me for everything. Drink of me, eat of me, make me your all. I am everything you need, and I am all that you have. The verses that come before these verses in John chapter 6 tell us what Jesus means when he says in John 6, 35, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me in faith shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John chapter 6, verse 40. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. John chapter 6, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And then the verses that come after explain more. John chapter 6, verses 63 and 64. The words that I have spoken to you, Jesus says, are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. So what Jesus means when he says, come to me, eat of me, drink of me, he means believe in me. Believe in me. So that's the personal nature. Each one of us must personally receive Christ. We must personally turn from our sin and embrace the provision that God has provided. He has provided a substitute. It's the only way to escape judgment. And this substitute is being offered to you this morning for the taking. Christ holds out his hands wide and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You've probably heard that before. You know, you're growing up in this area and being exposed to various aspects of Christianity. I mean, if you're a guest, you've, you probably have heard something like that. You've heard something about yet believing in Christ and trusting in Christ. But there's also a public nature to this response. Do you notice what the public nature is in Exodus chapter 12? What did they have to do? They had to go public with their trust in God. They had to actually take the blood and apply it not to the inside of their house, but to the outside to the door frames on the outside so that people who'd walk by say, oh, there's one of those Israelites again. There's one of those people who trust in the blood of the lamb. There's one of those who are look, thinking that some death angel is going to come through and kill everybody. It's just ridiculous. I mean, look at that. Look at that. I mean, get some pink paint for crying out loud. Something else, not this blood. This is horrendous. I mean, blood, a God who requires blood, I mean, this is, this is offensive. Not only did the Israelites have to believe, but they had to act it wasn't something they just did in private. The blood of the lamb functioned as a marker that the household belonged to God. God is commanding, too, that we also have a demonstrative act on Israel's part and on our part to de demarcate ourselves. Just as the Israelites had to apply blood to the doorframe of their house to go public that they belong to God and his people, so we do the same thing. In the New Testament, it's called baptism. It is going public with your faith and recognizing that you belong to Jesus Christ. So that's what I leave us with this morning. 
Do you understand this message? Do you understand what it means? Do you understand how God saves through the substitute of a lamb? And have you trusted in that? Have you placed your faith and your confidence exclusively in him? And have you gone public? Have you gone public and identified with Christ? If you're at any one of those places and you want to talk to any of us, we'll have pastors in the back, pastors up front, grab us. We'd love to talk to you if you're a guest this morning and want to know more about what that means and, and, what the, and, and uh, how we can serve you in that way uh, to help you better understand Christ and what he calls us to do. May God bless us as we contemplate and remember not only the death of the Lamb of God, but the triumphant resurrection as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this time together that we've had to contemplate the most important message in the entire world. So many messages have come across our Facebook feeds and television screens and newspapers and various forms of media this week. So many competing messages telling us what is most important, trying to grab our attention for what is most central but we thank you that for these last 40 minutes or so, we've gotten to think about, and really this entire service, this last hour and a half, we have gotten to think about the most important message in the world, that there is salvation available, that it's through a substitute lamb that God has provided. Lead us, all of us, to trust in that lamb and identify with him as his followers. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and respond.